So Professor Steve Farrell has come up from the University of Sheffield. Um, he's come down from the University of Sheffield. <laughs> To talk to us, as you can see by the title, about the long-term effects of that right social and economic policies. It's the project he's been working on for a few years yeah. already, and yeah. will continue, I think, because you've yeah. got good news about a grant to work on that. Um, in the past, has worked on persistence, a longitudinal study of probation officers, and uh, for those of us who were in Oxford 100 years ago, fear of crime <laughs> was very much uh, his thing. And Steve was with us at the centre, I think it was the... Early, late, late 90s? 96 to 2000. 96 to 2000. And I, I seem to recall being your internal examiner for your Yes, that's right, you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which makes me feel very old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> everyone's working actually really is old. Um, which was wonderful. So it's nice to see an old colleague back in Oxford, and we're very much looking forward to this talk. And a variation of this talk is published in the edited collection, Contours of Criminal Justice, which I edited with uh, Mary Boss and Lucia Zegner. So if your appetite is sweated by this presentation, you can go and read about it in that book. Of course, buy a few copies for all your friends. Well, I think I got away with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Subtle. Nice. Well, thanks, Steve. Okay, lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the uh, invitation. I'm going to be doing all of the talking, but sitting at the front next to Carolyn is Emily Gray, who also used to work here, who has very much played a part in uh, this uh, this project, um, this project too. So what am I going to do? I'm going to work out how to turn this thing on. There we go. So I'm going to talk a bit about the motivations for the project, uh, and then I'm going to talk about the extent to which the social and economic policies of the 1980s uh, were related to uh, crime. I'm particularly going to focus on uh, property crime in this case, rather than violent crime as well. Then I'm going to explore what happened when crime rates rose as a fiscal response, and then I'm going to start to move towards a conclusion of, um, of sorts. So, on to the uh, project motivations. And I've got a, a bit of a beef, really, with um, not just criminologists, but a lot of other social scientists as well, um, about banging on all the time about neoliberalism. And all of these books, to some degree, um, focus on neoliberalism, not exclusively uh, to, dis to, to disregard um, neoconservatism, but certainly highlight neoliberalism uh, at, at, I think, the expense of um, neoconservatism. And the, the, kind of the, the best exemplar I can give of this is a book by a man called Mark Hayes, which is called, he's a political scientist, and which is called something like The New Right in Britain and America in the 1980s, or something like that. It's a very small book um, that deals with the way in which people were approaching the new right in the 1980s. And the book has two parts to it. And the first part is called Neoconservatism, and the second part is called Neoliberalism. And we, as a community of scholars, I think, have focused unnecessarily closely on neoliberalism and have kind of forgotten about the other aspect of uh, that kind of new right um, approach, which was the neoconservative aspects. Now, that in itself is a bit of a shame, I think, to only look at one side of the coin. But I think that's particularly um, erroneous in the context of criminology, 
because it's the neoconservative aspects of new right thinking that I think really kind of drive criminal justice policy. Because it's the neoconservative stuff that's about, if you like, the moral majority, the respect for the law, the upholding of um, obligations uh, and um, obedience with kind of, kind of norms. But, so one of my uh, motivations was really to, to do something that would allow us to explore the degree to which neoliberal and neoconservative aspects of new right thinking can be teased apart. Can they be, I think you can tease them apart philosophically, but can you also tease them apart in a way that is relevant to an empirical uh, project? And that, in some respects, is what I'm now going to, uh, to, to show you here. I mean, particularly with regard to um, David Garland's book and the book by Jock Young, there's actually very little reference to any political administrations. Occasionally you get a mention of uh, Reagan or um, Thatcher. But there doesn't seem to be any reference to particular policies, be they economic or social policies. And there doesn't seem to be really any sort of focus on uh, the kind of individual political actors who may have been involved in drafting or developing those kind of um, Policies and then putting them into practice. One of the other things that I kind of have slowly come to hate more and more is the concept of late modernity. Because in some respects, you can't know that it's late because we don't know that it's ended or when it's going to end. So this talk, I, I gather, is scheduled to end at is it 5 or 5.30? It's one of those two, isn't it? Uh, five. Five. So when it gets to quarter to five, you will know he's late on in the talk or he's late on in the, in the thing. But we can't say that with modernity because we don't know when modernity is going to end or even in some respects, properly, when it started. So how we can know that it's late modernity or why it should be that late modernity is driving all of this um, strikes me as being, um, well, unfathomable. One of the other things which I find... Odd, particularly, and every time, every time I do this talk, I have to go back to uh, Garland's cultural control and just check that what I'm about to say is actually right. And I did it yesterday, and I was right. Is that there's a mention in the index in cultural control of the middle class, and there's no mention on the working class. Now, I'm not suggesting for one moment that um, all working class people go out and commit crime and none of the middle class do, because I've done projects that suggest that isn't true. But it does seem strange to talk about a period of um, North American and British history from the sort of the 60s through to, I guess, the early noughties and late 90s when David finished writing that book, without mentioning the working class, since in some respects they were... The, um, the section of society for whom that period of change would have, um, would have been, or would have felt um, uh, most dramatic, and indeed I, I suspect probably was. So that's the kind of preamble as to what got me thinking about all of these things. What I want to do now is to um, look at the way in which uh, those things that you might refer to as Thatcherite social and economic policies were related to um, crime rates. And as I say, particularly um, property crime rate. Now, none of this will be news to any of you, I hope, but this is the, um, the crime rate uh, for the period that we're most 
most interested in. So you see Thatcher comes in in 79, leaves in late 1990, then we have John Major for about seven years. And then the peak, as we know, is in the, in the period when John Major's um, in office. And that's kind of mirrored in both official uh, crime statistics and the British uh, Crime Survey, which doesn't start until 1982. So therefore, we have data from 1981. So that's that's what we're that's that's in some respects the kind of profile that we've been trying to explain. And the things that, that as a as a, uh, a project we've kind of focused on have been really four big areas of. Um, Policy and is a policy change. And I'm going to take them in this order because sequentially, as I say, chronologically, this is the order in which they took place. So Thatcher comes in in '79, and we have a focus on uh, really two big policy areas that we're interested in: economic policy. I mean, she had to she had to focus on economic policy because. Winning the 79 election was based on sorting out the economic mess that the country was in. Housing policies, that is to say, extending the right to buy scheme, was essentially about shoring up the, the kind of aspirant working class vote. We then have a kind of a period in the, uh, largely through the, the second term of office, the, the Tories expected to lose the 1983 general election. So the 1983 general election manifesto was massively de-radicalised. Uh, political scientists refer to as the second term of office from 83 to 87 as the lost administration. It's the administration which they weren't really able to do much because they'd so uh, massively de-radicalised their, their policies. Although, you know, there was still the miners' strike and the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, so it's not as if they were sitting there twiddling their thumbs for four years. Then, early, uh, early on we have, or in the kind of middle phase we have the Social Security uh, Act, and uh, then we have, right towards the end of Thatcher's period in office, um, changes in um, education policies, particularly. Well, the only ones really that we're interested in are the ones which relate to compulsory education. But, of course, there were lots of uh, changes in uh, university um, funding as well at around about that time. So let's take these then in order, starting with the um, economic changes. So we have, although this was already starting to happen under um, old labour, for want of a better word, we have a movement away from um, a commitment to full employment towards a commitment to full unemployment, as uh, I think it was Norman Fowler uh, put it in a slip of the tongue. So we have a movement away from, if you like, um, Keynesian economics towards something that was kind of a bit like monetarism, but they didn't do monetarism for very long, and that really only lasted to around about Easter 81. But certainly um, a move away from uh, uh, the aspiration of full employment and state ownership of numerous different sections of the economy. Most famously, buses, trains, steel, coal, housing, etc. But even Thomas Cook was once um, state-owned. So we see this kind of massive restructuring uh, as a result of those policies. And it won't surprise you to learn, or maybe it will surprise you to learn, we see uh, a shift in, or, or a change in levels of unemployment. So I, I think of this as a camel's back in profile. So if you imagine you're standing side onto a camel, it's got two lumps. Some of them, some of them only have one, I'm not sure why. Uh, so we see a 
huge lump of unemployment, if you like, during Thatcher's period in office. Now, that is mainly blue-collar workers from the Midlands up, so from about 60 miles north of here, <laughs> upwards, and of course Wales, uh, you have uh, widespread uh, unemployment. The much sharper peak in Major's period is the result of what's referred to as the Lawson boom. So basically the economy overheated, um, interest rates hit about 15%. And I think also there was a restructuring in the financial services toward, away from a, a kind of, if you like, pyramid-shaped management structure to one that was much flatter. And so lots of white-collar workers in the southeast. Um, are caught up in, in that um, growth and unemployment. In fact, I can remember, I grew up in the southeast in a dreadful little commuter town called Basingstoke, um, which is still dreadful little in a commuter town. And I have friends whose parents um, lost their, their jobs, and I suspect they were working in the city. I suspect that was, that was driven by, 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 that, by those kind of processes. So we have an increase in the unemployment rate, um, and then, of course, a, a decline. Now, what this does is this increases levels of economic inequality, but it does it in two ways. To begin with, the increases in levels of economic inequality, that is to say, for the first part of the 1980s, are driven by levels of unemployment. So, more unemployed people equals a greater level of economic inequality. I mean, that's fairly common because unemployed people uh, get state benefits, but they don't get as much as they would do if they were working. It's not a, a French model where they give you kind of 90 or 80% of what you were working for a particular period of time. However, levels of economic inequality continue to grow throughout the 1980s, and the growth there at the second part of the 1980s is driven not by levels of economic, uh, not driven not by levels of unemployment, but rather by changes in the tax system away from a progressive tax system whereby wealthy people were, um, were, ta- were taxed more towards a regressive system where people pay uh, similar levels of taxation. So we see a, a shift from taxation at point of pay towards um, VAT, which is at the point of um, consumption. So with that, we then see an increase in levels of economic inequality. This is uh, the Gini coefficient, which is the kind of standardised measure of um, uh, economic inequality. If you... If I traced this back using this thing, back to the 1990, 1920s, which is somewhere over there, the curve is basically dropping all the way down until you get to 78, and at that point it starts to come up. And I read something in the newspaper either yesterday or this morning that we've now reached levels of economic inequality under Theresa May that were similar to those uh, that we experienced with Thatcher. So I guess we're probably now kind of around about here-ish. It came down under, under Gordon Brown. Excuse me, it came down under Gordon Brown, but not too, not too very much to quit. So, in uh, a paper <coughs> which relied on um, officially recorded data, Will Jennings at Southampton, a guy called Sean Bevan and I, found uh, a number of statistically significant relationships between unemployment and property crime. We're only talking about property crime. So we find a strong relationship 
using time series models between the unemployment rate and the property crime rate. That's fairly standard. You get that in lots of different um, countries. But what we find using a natty little thing called rolling windows regression, which allows you to take, if you like, 25 years worth of data and just move forward one year at a time. So you've got blocks of 25 and you're moving through, for example, a 50-year period. We find that the coefficient, the relationship between unemployment and property crime rates, uh, strengthens. The coefficient gets, gets larger over time. So not only was there a relationship, it was a relationship that was becoming stronger. We find economic inequality just outside levels of significance that we'd be prepared to accept. Um, and I think that means we kind of got it right. It's the unemployment rate that's driving both economic inequality and the property crime rate. So I think that the fact that economic inequality doesn't fit inside the model doesn't worry me um, terribly much at all. I think those kind of, they're, both, they're both being um, driven by unemployment. Okay, that's enough about unemployment. Let's look at housing, because that's often one that um, when, I, you know, when I say to people, oh, we're interested in things like housing policy and um, uh, school policies, uh, people look at me and kind of scratch their heads. Well, you're interested in that sort of stuff. Um, you know, why are you interested in any of this anyway? But never mind. Um, so, housing policy. Now, the, the, not quite the majority, but an incredibly large proportion of houses in the UK, even as late as 1979, were owned by local states. Um, so I grew up in a, in a council house, for example. Some local authorities were running what was known as a right-to-buy scheme. So, in fact, actually everybody had the right to ask their local authority if they could buy their house, and the local authority had the, had the right to say... No, sorry, we're not selling it to you. Some places, Birmingham City Council, I think, was one of them, were starting to sell off some of their council stock. And in fact, it actually became Labour Party policy after review in either 77 or 75 that, uh, that you know, people should have the right to buy their council house property and that, that should be enabled more. Uh, it's one of the things that Thatcher kind of leapt on um, in order to do a number of different things. First of all, it shored up political support from uh, the aspirant working class. And secondly, of course, it, direct, it, it eroded the power of local authorities. What happened over time, however, was that this created a residualisation in existing council-owned um, stock. And that happened for a number of different ways. So the kind of housing that local authorities owned... Well, they had some totally detached houses on some of the better estates, but there weren't many of them. They had a reasonable amount of semi-detached houses, again, on some of the better estates, but you know, there were more of them, but not terribly many. And then they had um, rows and rows and rows, literally rows and rows and rows, of low-rise terraced houses, like the one that I grew up in. What they also had... Uh, particularly in some of the bigger cities like Glasgow and Manchester and some parts of London and typically in the inner cities although in Glasgow they were corners um, lots and lots of high-rise flats that nobody really much liked living in. So, when people, <clears throat> when people want to buy a house or when they want to buy accommodation they want to buy a house they want a house ideally on its own, with a small garden at the front, I don't know why, but they want a small garden at the front, and they want a bigger garden at the back, 
for the kids to play. Okay? So that housing stock, the semi-detached and the fully detached houses that fitted that model, went. You have to remember that New York-style loft living in a flat wasn't really very popular in the 1970s and 1980s because we hadn't yet watched Friends. Okay? When Friends comes in, things change. The next uh, set of houses that went, in terms of the popularity, were the houses like the ones that I grew up in, which were kind of small, three-bedroom, if you like, um, modern terraced houses. Okay? Nothing particularly exciting about them at all, and they went fairly quickly as well. The stuff that didn't go... Were, was uh, high-rise flats, or indeed any flat, or masonettes. And that's partly because council-run masonettes were typically designed for disabled or elderly people, and the House of Lords injected into the 1980 Housing Act a uh, subclause that meant that houses that had been specially adapted were exempt from the right to buy scheme. So we had a massive sell-off of houses, but not randomly higgledy-piggledy, particular types of housing went, particular types of housing didn't go. There was also, pardon the pun, a follow-your-neighbour effect. So places where lots of people bought houses, lots of people bought houses. And places where nobody was buying houses, nobody was buying houses. And that's probably driven by the fact that we were moving to a situation, following the economic changes, whereby you had lots of people in one place that earned money, because they were in work, and lots of places, people somewhere else, who weren't earning money because they were unemployed and therefore couldn't afford to buy their houses. So we have a, if you like, residualisation of housing over time, or at least a sort of containerisation of housing over time. The other thing that happened just before this, in 1977, was a thing called the Homeless Persons Act, which massively extended the definition of homelessness and actually brought lots more people into local authority housing, made them more eligible for it. So it was a massive drawing in of need, if you like, massive acceleration in need, or increase in need, and then, if you like, a turning off of what was there because it was being sold off. The receipts from the sales, local authorities were not allowed to put back into housing. So the housing that was there... Over time, A, it wasn't replenished because they couldn't build new ones, although Theresa May now seems to be rethinking that policy. And secondly, the housing that they still owned, there wasn't as much of a budget to uh, maintain it in terms of the, 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 uh, the, the condition of the housing. So over time, using data from the British Crime Survey, which, come on, let's turn this on, here it is. It's on already. This is the British Crime Survey. These are the owners, these are the renters. I appreciate you can't really see this particularly well. You see um, unemployment levels rise and then decline for the people that own their own houses. Those people who are social renters, which does include people in housing associations, but there wouldn't have been very many of them. Social renters at this era really does mean council tenants. Uh, it starts higher and it just keeps on uh, going. Of course, that's the, that's the sort of peaking unemployment we saw earlier, but it, it doesn't fade out as quickly. Uh, when you look at British social attitudes data for uh, owners and social renters, this is for low-income households, you see similar trends. Um, adjacent to run-down stock, question from the British Crime Survey, short run, uh, not particularly discernible, but there's clearly shifts there. And living close or living in a high turnover area, 
you see similar trends in terms of um, the renters and the owners. So housing over time, or council housing stock, becomes um, residualised and effectively becomes the uh, accommodation of last resort for many people. It also starts to become uh, accommodation that has uh, increasing levels of ethnic minority um, concentrations. And of course at this point ethnic minorities were amongst the lowest paid in the UK, and it has all sorts of other kind of problems which we've documented in a, in a recently published British Crime Survey, um, the British German Criminology paper. Sorry, too many British in this. What does all of this do to um, domestic property crime? Well, because the British Crime Survey didn't start until 1982, and then it's about 1981, we can't rely on the British Crime Survey. However, the General Household Survey which is here, did ask a question about theft from home in 72, 73 and 80. And you can see for the owners, this is, uh, has it ever happened to you in the past year, or has it happened to you in the past year? It's a pretty standard, pretty, pretty stable run. About 2% of owners have had something stolen from their houses. For the uh, renters, uh, sorry, the social renters, it's around about 3%, and again, pretty static. When you look, not just whether it has happened or not, but the number of times it has happened, you see, again, a fairly standard pattern. So, very small number of uh, uh, average thefts from the home for the owners, and a small number, but about double that, for the social renters. And those, those differences are statistically significant. But what you can see from that is pretty much a steady state. So, we had inequality, <coughs> excuse me, but we had steady state uh, inequality. It's not getting better, it's not getting worse, it's just there. When we move to using the British Crime Survey data, and of course the British Crime Survey data is a much better measure of these sorts of things. So here, that's just one question that we're looking at there from the General Household Survey. But when we move to the British Crime Survey, I think we, we can rely on something like five or six different domestic property crime type things, you know, having your shed broken into, having your house broken into, having stuff in it from outside, those sorts of things. We see a different um, picture. So again, the owners are at the top, and you can see uh, an increase, a decrease for them. And the social renters are at the bottom. They, always, they start a bit higher. The, the peak is kind of there, but you know, it's not, not a lot of difference there in terms of has it happened to you in the past year. But when you look at the count data at the bottom here, so this is the average for each group, you see for the owners it is at about 0.13 at the start of the run, and it hasn't changed much by the end. Yeah, okay, it rose, as you'd expect, but it comes down again. Uh, for the social renters, it rises and it gets a little bit higher. But here, look at the difference here in the proportions. It's almost, you're almost twice as likely to be a victim of some kind of domestic property crime if you are in rented accommodation than if you were uh, an owner of your own house. And we've um, explained why that might be the case in the, in the PJC article. So, of course, we have a, a, a complex situation at the beginning of the period because there were some council housing estates that were used by 
Council housing offices is basically dumping grounds. The one in Basingstoke was a place called Popley, but I'm glad to say I didn't live. Uh, but it was widely known that uh, that was not an estate that you wanted to, 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 to move to. But we see a concentration over time of social and economic need, and then rather unsurprisingly, a concentration of crime um, over time as well. Social security. So, the social security system is incredibly complicated, but it was even more complicated in the late 70s and early 1980s. I'm always staggered at the sorts of stuff you could get a grant or money from the local government um, for. When you look back at that, that you know, what, what was on offer at that particular um, time. It's not to say that it shouldn't be on offer, it's just I'm surprised that there was a welfare state that was prepared to do all of that. The Conservative Party knew what they wanted to do, but the system was so complicated that actually they weren't really able to produce the effects that they wanted. And so there were a number of different acts early on in the Thatcher administrations which were actually rather benign, or in fact actually quite generous to um, uh, welfare recipients. And partly that's a kind of legislative hangover. They were passing through acts or they were de- tidying up acts that had been um, drafted by civil servants working under Labour. But eventually uh, they asked Norman Fowler to undertake a review of Social Security, which he uh, completed by 1984, and it's um, known as the Fowler Review. Not a lot of thought went into that one, I suspect. That then became the 1986 Social Security Act, but that didn't actually become law until the 1st of April 1988. So there's actually an incredibly long lag in terms of... You know, this is turning around a tanker, okay? It's not turning around a mini or anything like that. You are turning around a super tanker. And so it is going to take literally years to understand what's going on, to legislate, to get that through the Houses of Parliament, and then to actually get that operational and working. Now, what happened was that although Social Security spending went through the roof throughout the 1980s, there were far more mouths, literally, to feed. And so people were getting an increasingly small slice of that pie. So the actual payments to individual welfare recipients um, went down. Now, there's evidence to suggest that when you decrease uh, social security payments, you see increases in crime. Uh, the Ryan Witt paper actually relates to Scotland and is based on housing expenditure rather than many other expenditures. It's a bit of, a, bit of an odd one, that, but it's not an uncommon finding. The paper that uh, Will Jennings, Sean Bevan and I uh, wrote uh, suggests, using social security spend, that when you increase social security spending, you see a decrease in property crime. And similarly, when you cut social security spending, you see an increase in um, property crime Right, we did have a figure. If you wanted to spend, if you wanted to reduce one burglary, you needed to spend X pounds. I can't remember what it is, but it's 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 in the paper. And so these two would have, uh, if robbed is too strong a word, but denuded people in need of um, further income, which would have increased their levels of economic inequality, and also uh, we would argue driven up uh, property crime. And now we come to education. So, 
One of the things that Margaret Thatcher and her government were really, really keen on was choice. So people were to be given choice in all sorts of different things. But the problem with choice is that you need some benchmark by which to make a choice. So if you walk into the, uh, you know, walk into a, uh, a local restaurant or sandwich shop, and all they have on sale is ham sandwiches, you have no choice. You have to buy a ham sandwich or walk out, I guess. So they needed to create choice in the education agenda, in the education sector, and the way to do that was to publish information about how well each school was doing in terms of getting uh, people through uh, GCSEs at a certain benchmark. Okay, so I think it's percentage of children at that school with five or more GCSEs at grades A to C or something like that. They created this league table. And of course, uh, anyone that has been involved in the ref, which is essentially a league table, right... Anybody who's involved in the ref knows that if there's a league table, you don't want to come bottom, right? You want to come towards the top. Even if there's no chance of getting relegated. It doesn't really matter if you come bottom with the ref in any particular sense. It's not like somehow you have to go and play being an academic in Bolivia or somewhere. You know, you, you don't get relegated. You just look a bit silly in front of your mates, okay? So everyone wants to get to the top of the table. So that means there's a whole lot of game playing. Of course there's a whole lot of game playing. And we're good at it, right? We're academic. We know how to massage things. People have made careers on this stuff. And the same thing happened with school league tables. Now, that's not to say that the results were falsified, but rather what happened was that the focus on league tables gave head teachers a ready-made purpose to exclude unruly kids. Because the unruly kids aren't the A-string kids that can do really well, although there are some of those. Uh, the unruly kids are the kids who are probably in the lower, screen, lower streams who are A, causing trouble in school, so that's why you can boot them out, and B, hey, they won't appear in the figures because we've uh, excluded them. So what you see is a massive increase in school exclusions. Now, prior to the 1980s, I have it in good authority, there were so few exclusions, I'm talking about exclusions here, not truancy, so few exclusions in England and Wales that nobody bothered to count them. The best guesses are that there may have been a few hundred. But nobody really knows for sure. But, but there were so few that nobody bothered to count. We start counting school exclusions in uh, the academic year 1991. And it's around about three or 4,000 in England and Wales. It reaches a peak in 96-97 at about 13,000. Okay, so there was a massive increase in less than a decade of exclusions from school. Now, the great thing about excluding kids from school, if you're a head teacher, is that they're not your problem. But kids don't just vanish. Okay, they, they still exist as entities. And where do they go? Well, they kind of hang around the local area. Which is what Home Office Report Number 71 found that actually kids hanging around on the street getting into trouble was a major increase of antisocial behaviour, which is hardly really particularly surprising because they were doing this stuff in school and it wasn't getting recorded by the police. Nobody was phoning up. Head teachers were caning them. <laughs> uh, 
that it wasn't getting into the criminal justice system. As soon as they're in a public space, which of course they would be because they're not in school, and they're certainly not going to sit at home because they didn't have Xboxes or anything to play with, and daytime telly in the 1980s was atrocious, they went out, smoke fags, hang around uh, lampposts, and got into trouble. And you can detect that in the British Crime Survey. There's a dramatic jump um, from 8% of people in 2001 saying that local kids hanging around were a problem to 30% the year later. Now, I looked at those figures and I thought, well, they must be wrong. They've changed the question wording. They've changed the scale from a four to a five. They put it in a different part of the questionnaire. We can find none of those things. None of those things that would make you think, oh, they just stuffed up the question and you know, don't believe the data. That seems, I think, that kind of was it three or fourfold, almost fourfold in Brisbane, actually seems to be um, a real thing rather than a methodological artifact of dodgy um, crime service. Not like statistics anyway, but which crime survey is at all dodgy. Now, of course, all those kids hanging around was manna from heaven for Tony Blair, who used that as the, uh, the flagship, or, or used it as the basis for the flagship crime disorder act, because that would tackle antisocial behaviour. And, of course, we do have, or we did have, uh, uh, I think, an increase uh, measured here, at least, by the British Crime Survey, of antisocial um, behaviour. One of the other things that we've been doing as part of the project, and this is the, the size I'm going to show you now, we've kind of uh, superseded um, by thinking about this slightly differently, but I wanted to show you them anyway, um, because I think they're just quite interesting, is to think about the period of change that we're talking about from the 70s through to the, to the um, or from the 80s through to the, to the to well into the noughties, as a kind of social storm. This is a term that I stole from Dan Dorling when he used to work at Oxford, he now um, uh, is here uh, in geography. And so what we try to do is to think about what kind of things a social storm would do. So this is, if you like, massive societal disruption of all sorts, okay, that might be associated with crime. So we produced a, um, this is again time series modelling, so it's a dynamic factor analysis of the retail price index, the level of unemployment, the Gini coefficient, and the rates of suicide, divorce, and abortion, um, housing repossessions, and the number of children taken into care. Which, interestingly, there was data going back to, uh, in, back to 1952 on. So those things uh, we found, we've changed the model slightly, we now talk about a social and an economic um, storm, but those things, when we put them into the, to, uh, to a model explained all of this. Okay, so the number of all crimes, recorded in the British Crime Survey, the number of all property crimes, the number of all violent crimes, the number of victims, all of them, the number of property crimes, and the number of, um, sorry, property victims, and the number of violence victims as well. So this thing seems that the kind of social storm, at least by that model, seems to have influenced all sorts of different um, levels of crime. And we would say that that wasn't uh, uh, coincidental. So, I've talked about, well, shown you the stuff that you knew, that crime rose and then, um, then fell. And I tried to explain how that may be related to four different areas of social and economic policies pursued by the uh, governments of the 1980s and early 
90s, what then happened when um, crime rates rose? Because it's not as if people are just going to sit there and do nothing. So we find um, that there's uh, not just a rise in um, crime, as you as we have demonstrated, but also there's a rise in um, the fear of crime, that's the rise in crime again, and a rise in the fear of crime, which maps that. So if you like, that's, that's crime, that's fear of crime. They're not quite on the same axes, but you can see that the fear of crime tracks pretty closely um, the rise of crime. What we also have, which I think is you know, interesting, but I'm not sure many other people have necessarily thought about it like this, is we have an increase in punitive opinion. Now, we've taken out the death penalty from this one, because when you put in the death penalty to the model, uh, your measure of punitiveness just kind of flatlines down. Because over time, in the UK, people have been coming less and less convinced the death penalty is appropriate. Interestingly, if you use the British Social Attitudes data, which is what, which is what we've done, there is a Jamie Bolger effect that lasts for, I think I'm right in saying, around about 20 years. So, Support for the death penalty is coming down. We have Jamie Bolger's death, and then it goes up, and then it comes down, and it takes about 20 years to get down again to where it was before Jamie Bolger uh, was abducted and, and murdered. So anyway, we stripped out um, the death penalty from this, and you can see that there's a fairly strong relationship between punitive opinions, which is the, the dark line, and recording crime, which is the dash line. That's been published in uh, a paper in government. So increase in crime, increase in uh, fear of crime, increase in punitiveness. We've also tracked in the government's paper an increase in the attention devoted to law and order in the Queen's speech. So the whole other political scientists who calculate the percentage of the Queen's speech, which is always about 1,500 words, they calculate the percentage of that that's related to um, law and order, whether it's criminal law, administrative law, housing, all those sorts of different things. And you can you see a, a relationship between what the Queen talks about when she's given her Queen's speech, if she is doing it, or this is Steve Bell's Mickey take of uh, the Queen doing it. If you can't read it at the back, that says, one son says, bang them up and throw away the key. Uh, and we again find a relationship between uh, the, leg- the executive uh, legislative program, the expressed executive legislation expressed through the Queen's speech, and uh, crime. And we also find that in Hansard as well. You can search Hansard from something like 1841 to <coughs> oddly March 2007, and it just stops abruptly. I'm not sure why it should stop there. Maybe they just hadn't got any further when we did the modelling, but uh, you can you can you can track all these trends in, in, a diff- in, in lots of different ways, different key terms as well. So what happens, of course, is that uh, we see Michael Howard, who rather unexpectedly, even to him, becomes Home Secretary. He talks up crime. Michael Howard had never spoken about crime in the House of Commons at all. And um, he, we interviewed him uh, for part of the project. He uh, told us that uh, he was sat down by the senior civil servants at the Home Office and said, look, it's going to go up 5% per annum each year. Don't raise expectations. Don't say you're going to get it down. Just hold on. 
and try not to get fired. In those days, the Home Office and the Ministry of Justice weren't separate entities. I think it's interesting to think that actually we've seen far fewer Home Secretaries have to resign or, or get sacked since the Ministry of Justice got taken out of the Home Office. I don't know if that's, that's a coincidence. So I just wonder if the Ministry of Justice for the Home Secretary, or the big of the Home Office that, that became the Ministry of Justice wasn't in some respects a bit of a hostage to fortune. It could, it could all go horribly wrong um, uh, and, and cause them to, to, to need to resign or need to feel the need to resign. But anyway, um, how talks stuff on crime has a 27 or 28 point list of things that he's going to do at one of the Conservative um, Party uh, conferences. And just by saying things like prison works, we have an increase in um, receptions into prison, which is probably because magistrates, I'm hypothesising at this point, magistrates thought, well, if he says it works, it probably works. Okay, so, they, so they're sending more people to uh, prison. We also have rises or increases in the average prison sentence length, which appears to be due to strict enforcement over time, and mandatory minimum sentences. And the prison population grows quite, um, quite dramatically. Now, uh, we've already had one plug for Carolyn et al.'s book. Here's another. This is a slide which A is in the book and B you can't read. It should be good for sales. Um, <laughs> because you'll need to go and buy it. What I've done here, and you'll have to take my word for it, because I know you can see it, uh, these columns are years. And the years are different, <clears throat> represent different acts, or the, the years that different acts were passed into legislation. So on the very far left, we have the 1982 Criminal Justice Act, then PACE, then Prosecution of Offenders, then Drug Trafficking Offences Act in 86, then, the, then three Criminal Justice Acts. I remember somebody saying uh, in the uh, early 90s, oh, it doesn't matter if we get this one wrong, there'll be another Criminal Justice Act along in a minute. A bit like buses, really. So um, 88, 91 and 93 are all Criminal Justice Acts. Uh, by 94, we get bored of them, so it's called the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act, just for change. Then we have the, um, I can't read my own handwriting, uh, Criminal Proceeds and Investigation Act in 96, Crime Sentences Act, passed in the dying days of John Major's uh, administration in 97, and the latest Crime Disorder Act. Now, the top half of the table this bit up here charts attempts, if you like to decrease punitiveness so if you like, not to put too strong a word, like to try and be nice to people Okay. so we see attempts in the 82 Act to limit the use of imprisonment which actually works when Thatcher came into office the daily prison count was 39,000 within a couple of years it had dropped to um, about 37,000 Due, many people think, to the 1982 Criminal Justice Act. We need to see people have other accounts of that. Um, we have in PACE uh, increased rights of suspects and limits to the police powers, uh, and so on and so forth. And all this grey box here, in some respects, represents a period during which, uh, and this will say it's only this period, you know, if, if, we, if we did this that way, you'd probably find something similar. A period during which there's, a, there's attempts to reduce the punitive aspect, or some of the punitive aspects, of the criminal justice system. Then it stops here in 91. This, this big black line is there simply to signify the point at which Thatcher is no longer in power. Um, 
And we see a kind of a hangover with the 91 Act, which would have taken some time to, to draft. And then this big dark box here, which on some sides has written in red, empty, uh, represents the fact that all of that kind of, all that sort of depunitive... We don't even have a word for it, do we? You can talk about... It's not punitiveness. Trying not to be punitive. I'm not sure if, what, what, what the synonym was. But, we, but that kind of stops around about here. Now, the bottom half of the table represents increases in punitiveness. And again, the ticks represent the things that are happening. Now, this is therefore not to suggest that we didn't see attempts at being uh, punitive at that time. But over time, there is an increasing number of them, which is what that dashed line represents. So we are seeing simultaneously, if you like, a moving away from uh, being not punitive. Not too many double negatives, possibly. And simultaneously, an increase towards being more punitive in lots of different ways. So if you like, an attempt to, to find new ways of smacking more and more bottoms. Okay? Which I think is, is kind of interesting um, in its... Yeah, in itself. So, what do the Labour Party do? Presented with all of this, and the memory of the 83 general election, they move to the political right. That process starts fairly on, fairly early on. Uh, starts really under Neil Kinnock, but really comes to a head with Tony Blair. And his famous mantra, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. We have a focus on young offenders. Uh, I wonder the degree to which that's not related to the school exclusions that we discussed um, earlier. Because you know, people excluded from school are under the age of 16. And of course, Labour didn't oppose the Crime Sentences Act, despite the fact that there were sort of actually quite draconian measures in it, which they may at other points um, have elected to at least uh, discuss rather than just kind of acquiescing. When in power, um, Labour have to do something about crime. They have to do something about crime for a number of reasons. So crime peaks in 94, Labour coming in 97. It takes a while for the Home Office to turn around those numbers and churn them out. So the initial inkling of a crime drop uh, took several years, actually, to be widely recognised. And then, of course, about 20 years for the public to notice that um, the crime drop had happened. So Labour needed to do something about crime because it was still a problem, um, or at least perceived to be a problem. They also needed to do something about crime because they didn't want to be accused of being soft on crime. And left a load of lefty, woolly-hatted um, uh, you know, tree hugs. So they had to do something about crime and they had to avoid being seen to have gone soft on crime. Okay, I've crackled on for enough, uh, but I'm going to persist, uh, at least for a few more slides. So I want to move now towards... Um, a conclusion. So, I, I mean, whether criminologists and other bits of the social sciences like it or not, I think there's enough evidence and thinking from 
political science that Thatcherism represented a mix of both neoliberalism and neoconservatism. And in sometimes these things pulled apart. So Sunday trading, for example, Sundays, for those of you who weren't alive during the 1980s, were tediously dull. You couldn't buy a thing unless it was about to go off. Perishable goods. So you could buy milk and eggs. And that was about it. Everything else, verboten. Um, the libertarian uh, right, the neoliberals, wanted to change Sunday trading laws. They were known as Sunday trading laws. So that we could flog stuff to people. Why not? The day of the week, you've got all of these fixed overhead costs. You've got Woolworths shut for no good reason. Flog people stuff. The neoconservatives, on the other hand, thought that was absolutely a problem. But Sundays are special. They were going to church and praying for Margaret Thatcher's next election. So they were dead opposed. So there were times when the neoliberals and the neoconservatives faced different ways. Same thing happens with soft drug use. But when, if you like, the crosshairs align, then it was very strong. And there was, there was, there was a reason for, for, um, being, uh, for, for pursuing the same agenda when the neoliberals and the neoconservatives, as it were, sort of agreed on uh, the, the remedies. Now, I think... Uh, that in some respects that a lot of the changes brought about by the uh, conservative government of the 1980s, which were, if you like, neoliberal, or mainly neoliberal, it's not as if they've got a clear blue water between the two, was that a mainly neoliberal about housing, about employment, about social security, were the factors which helped contribute to the rising crime, particularly, for example, unemployment, or, if not the rises in crime, then the concentration of crime amongst particular social sections, which is what you get with um, housing policy changes. You then see a rise in fear and punitiveness amongst the general population, which is latched onto by um, particular politicians who uh, political scientists have a term for, which is policy entrepreneurs, so if you like... Howard and Blair were policy entrepreneurs in terms of the crime uh, or the criminal justice agenda. And they then articulate solutions. And we, we entered, a, if you like, an arms race of nastiness between those, those, those two individuals in particular, but generally. And that led to uh, increased levels of punitiveness. Remember the slide that you couldn't see uh, or couldn't read? Uh, over time which resulted in, um, actually, our modelling suggests, crime coming down. So the, the things in our model for property crime rate that predict um, crime increases, property crime increases and property crime decreases, decreases are the economy and the incarceration rate. So actually, sending more people to prison did help reduce crime. But we weren't just sending more people to prison... We started off sending, well, when Margaret Thatcher came in, just under 40,000 people in prison on any one day. That rose to around about 46,000 on any one day by the time Michael Howard came into office. Don't write these figures down. They may not be absolutely correct. But um, they're now at around about 87,000 per day. In England and Wales, about another seven or 8,000 in Scotland, I believe. So this isn't just prison works. This is massively increasing the number of people, doubling the number of people uh, in any one day that you are holding in prison. Now, I think it's pretty hard. I can't think of very much 
in terms of social policy that if you didn't double wouldn't have dis- some discernible impact. So if you double the number of GPs or nurses uh, that's going to have some impact on healthcare. In fact actually that's Labour had a, um, a waiting time, a waiting list drive in the late 1990s, where basically everybody got as much overtime as they wanted to try and bring down waiting lists. If you increased the, I don't know, the number of security guards that uh, working in particular places, that's going to have some kind of impact. If you doubled the number of teachers that you had, that would have some kind of impact. It may take you 15 or 16 years to spot that, but doubling things is going to do something to whatever it is that you're your, you know, the, the kind of key output. So this isn't to suggest that prison works, but rather that if all you care about is reducing crime, you have no other interest in any other social and economic policies, then sending an awful lot of people to prison is going to do something to your, your crime rate. Of course, there are huge consequences socially and for the individuals involved if you go, kind of, if you go down that route. So I would argue that um, Thatcher did have a legacy, or maybe does have a legacy, for the criminal justice system and crime. We saw huge increases in crime throughout the 80s and 90s. We had changes in public sentiments about crime and about the way in which we um, should respond to crime. And then we had a clearly toughened um, criminal justice system as a response to that. We have the creation of a new consensus on crime and how we should um, treat um, offenders. But as I've been kind of repeatedly saying, neoliberalism um, is only part of that story. In some respects, you need the kind of neoconservative element as well. As with um, other social attitudes which we've modelled, this kind of need blares acquiescence in these new Labour governments to come along and basically accept and in some respects deeper, the Thatcherite settlement for this stuff to have any purchase. My last slide is to uh, tell you about another ESRC project, which we'll generally and I will be starting in a few months' time. Um, we're going to be analysing the influence on crime amongst two birth cohorts. So the UK has a number of different birth cohorts. The first was in 1946 called the 46 birth cohort, which you can't actually really get access to anymore because it's got so much medical data on it. The uh, next one uh, is the 58 birth cohort, the National Child Development Study. All of these were designed to be 12 years apart. Uh, The one that we're particularly interested in is what's called the birth cohort study, 1970, um, which, if you like, are Thatcher's children. Both of these these cohorts, in some respects, are, are Thatcher's children. There should have been another birth cohort in 1982, but um, Jay Gershley tells me that that kind of goes. I don't know why. And then, of course, we have the Millennium cohort uh, much, much more recently. So we're going to explore the extent to which individuals in those co- cohorts, is about, uh, there were about uh, 17,000 births in those two cohorts, and they've been kind of followed up. Um, the, the degree to which uh, economic policy, the economic and social policies that we've I've discussed can be found, or the evidence of them affecting their experiences of crime can be found amongst those, those groups. We're also going to run a survey, which you can't read again, um, to assess the relevance of Thatcherite uh, ideologies today. 
Um, we've got two PhD students funded by the School of Law who will be um, associated with that survey and a two-year research uh, assistant post, all of which should be advertised very soon as soon as the uh, paperwork's sorted out. And last, because I like doing it, because it's quite good fun, we're going to make a short film for um, teaching purposes. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much.